actually sort of raised that we're getting a lot of queries from our asset owners around defensive equity type strategies. Um, you know, the questions were sort of thrown around in terms of well, why don't people maybe downweight their equity component as opposed to just being defensive equities or you know, run, run a, maybe a smaller, highly concentrated, higher risk piece of equities and, and downweight. So we came back to this topic around defensive equities. Um, but then when we started talking to a whole range of people, what defensive means to each, each one of, um, asset, of the asset owners, and then from a manager perspective, as we have Adrian, Greg, and Chris here today um, to give some context to, that the philosophy and, and difference of, of what it means to be defensive in this current environment um, is, means many things to many people. So to start this session, we're going to have a bit of an introduction um, uh, from Chris first, then Greg, then Adrian, in terms of what is actually uh, defensive um, equities mean to them, what their philosophy is in terms of that backdrop. And then from there, we'll, we'll start the conversation. So, Chris, I'll open it to you. <coughs> Thanks, Alex. Um, so when we were asked to think about this topic, it was pretty good timing because I was actually reading this book, um, Pioneering Portfolio Management, probably the seminal read on endowment investing by the Yale CIO, David Swenson. And there's an anecdote in there that really um, stuck out. So in the 1970s, the Avon Foundation, which is the foundation set up to manage the assets of that, you know, the door-to-door -door cosmetics business, um, they appointed a consultant and they wanted to reduce their exposure to a big asset, which was their own stock. Um, so, you know, it was good timing. It was part of the Nifty 50. Um, large cap growth stocks had been on this incredible run and they thought they would, they would reduce that exposure. So they appointed JP Morgan, um, who promptly uh, sold off and uh, reallocated into other members of the Nifty 50. So other members of the same cohort. Sounds incredible <coughs> today, but that happened and obviously absolutely no defense um, against the, the dramatic collapse of, of those stocks that came. So this speaks to some, relative, uh, some relevant topics here. Diversification, stock selection, correlation, and concentration. So consider the two tools of defensiveness, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek labeled here, the, the sword of stock selection. Uh, what, does, what is the company's business model? What are, how recurrent are the earnings? Uh, what is the management quality? What does the balance sheet look like? And of course, the valuation. And then we have the shield of portfolio construction. Um, so the industry exposure matters, yes, but it's how the stock behaves. You know, is it up to the eyeballs in a bunch of low vol ETFs that mean that when the crap hits the fan, it's actually gonna be anything but low vol. The point is that what's defensive isn't static. It changes over time. Um, and it's these changes equity managers need to be all over. So they're not holding something that they think is a rock that turns out to be a hand grenade. So I'm going to illustrate with this, the humble Kit Kat. Uh, recently voted one of Australia's favorite chocolate bars. Actually, the number one winner was the Polly Waffle, <laughs> but I'm told that I can't get a hold of any of those. So the Kit Kat made by Nestle, traditionally um, thought of as a, as a defensive stock. And in fact, if we look into the value chain of the Kit Kat, we can see lots of other companies and areas that benefit from this defensives, defensiveness. Um, the quality control companies like SGS or, or Bureau Veritas, um, the agriculture companies, the energy utilities that provide electricity to the, the factories, uh, the brand owner itself, the packaging machines, uh, and then of course the retailers that actually sell the finished bars uh, to us. 
But actually, if you look at some of these examples here, um, you know, and these are three companies which all would have been large weights in, uh, you know, in portfolios, playing that role of defensive equities seven or eight years ago. And with good reason, you know, they had long-term track records, defensive, recurrent earnings, good management teams. But they've all delivered periods of pretty horrible performance in the intervening period at times, and all of which would have been relatively observable in advance if you were close to the companies. So, you know, in Tesco's case, industry deterioration, um, mismanagement, in the case of Nestle, changing consumer trends, national grid, changes in regulation and interest rates. Uh, any winners from these things? Well, there's one example, Jividan. Um, this is a company that does flavors uh, to the food processing industry. It's managed to pivot itself so that its customer base is more around those small independent craft brands that we all like to eat today. It's also pivoted its uh, supplier base to natural ingredients. So again, you know, able to print those clean credentials on the food. In short, it's changed you know, and managed to avoid those, those regulatory and industry uh, headwinds and turn them into tailwinds. So just thinking about this, I mean, how do these four sto uh, stocks stack up in terms of defensiveness? Well, they seem pretty diversified. They all do something different. You know, being diversified means different business models as well as different sectors. So I guess we're saying, what part of this KitKat would you want to be exposed to that has the least um, exposure to competition, disruption, and other external factors? What about correlation and concentration? Well, again, all four of those stocks have tended to move together at times. I know this because we've owned them in the past. And in fact, I think it's this increased um, correlation and indexation of, of public markets which is going to you know, become an increasing topic for asset managers. This you know, too much money chasing too few stocks um, and creating more of these <coughs> nifty 50 moments. When we look at a share register on a company, one of the first things I look at is you know, who are the owners. If the top 10 guys are all ETF providers, it sort of gives you some indication of the conviction levels of the business owners. Um, if they tend to be family, founder, uh, a foundation or a trust, or other sort of long-term um, good uh, asset managers, that sort of gives you a bit more comfort. So, I mean, just to finish, is defensive equities a strategy? Yes, I think it can be, and I think we're going to talk more about this, but what's defensive changes over time? That's what I want you to take away. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Greg? Okay, yes. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for your attention. Um, by way of disclosure, I should say that this title, this question, is defensive equities really a strategy? We were um, instructed to put that as the title. I kind of chuckle at it because my firm, Perkins Investment Management, we style ourselves as a defensive value specialist. So we talk about defensive investing with our client base around the world really all the time. And so my answer to the question is just a flat yes, it is a strategy. Um, by way of very brief introduction, uh, I was introduced to investing when I was a kid growing up by my grandmother. Read a lot about famous investors as, as some, some of us do uh, early on, such as Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, and the like. Uh, I ended up buying my first stock when I was 14. I convinced my parents to let me use some of the college savings they were cobbling together to buy a stock. 
Uh, and the big caveat, though, was, hey, if you lose this money or, you know, if it goes down, there is no magic. You're just going to have to work an extra job or have a bigger debt burden when you leave. And so for me, the notion of the risk side of the equation when investing in the stock market has been front and center for um, the, the whole time of my career and even prior to it. And so to me, that idea that losses can do a lot of damage is the driving reason why defensive investing is a strategy and makes sense. So to that end, our team is constantly asking the question when we're looking at individual securities, what could go wrong, how much could we lose? We ask that question very early on in the process. We think about having different drivers of alpha in the portfolio, somewhat to Chris's point, you don't want everything behaving in the exact same way at the same time. So for instance, uh, later this week, Chairman Powell is going to give a, a press conference after the big interest rate decision, and I don't know any better than you what he's going to say, but I do know I don't want my entire portfolio moving in one direction based on whatever it is he says. And so limiting losses is crucial. You lose a little bit, it doesn't take too much more than that to get back to even, but as you get to bigger drawdowns, 20, 30, 40%, it really takes a Herculean effort just to get back to even, and that's just the simple math of compounding. And so from our perspective, defensive this means limit the losses during periods of stress, participate in the gains over time, and in so doing, compound higher rates of return but with less risk along the way. Today, I would note, and I'm sure all of you are aware, that many so-called defensive sectors, low um, movement in their earnings from period to period, have been bid up in this rally. It's been a growth-led rally, and it's been a quality and low vol led rally over the last five years in particular. And as multiples expand, risk rises even in high quality businesses. So to us, defensiveness is not simply buying stable businesses. Price matters. And so our team today in that environment is finding what we would refer to as defensive value in a number of areas that might not be so obvious. So briefly as an example, BMW. Yes, autos are cyclical. Yes, they have structural challenges, but BMW is an iconic global brand. They're very well managed. They have a huge net cash balance sheet, and it's a rock bottom valuation. Those elements lend defensiveness to that security. Uh, a little bit farther afield, Yamato Kogyo, a Japanese listed steel company, and they have operations around the world. And no, steel doesn't scream defensiveness when you, when you say that initially. But this is a company that is an electric arc furnace technology, so that's in contrast to the blast furnace, so it's more of a spread-based business. They were profitable during and throughout the global financial crisis to give you a sense of how that is quite different than traditional steel making. 70% of the market cap is sitting on the balance sheet in net cash and investments. That's easy to identify, very much lends some defensiveness to it. Also, very low price to value. Third example you will be aware of, probably for negative reasons, uh, Wells Fargo has its 
fake account scandal hanging over it, but also it has the interest rate and credit questions that a lot of banks have. Those issues have conspired to depress the valuation. But this is a company that today is returning 10% of its market cap to us every year, about 40% of it in dividends, 60% in stock buybacks. The valuation has come down to a 20-year low. And this is essentially America's largest main street bank with diversity all across um, the country. So those would be three examples just to try to illustrate from our perspective of what today is being offered in the market as defensive value individual security opportunities. Thank you. That's great. Adrian? Thank you. Welcome, everyone, and a pleasure to be here. Um, at Ebony, we come from a slightly different background. We come from a very strong uh, private equity heritage. I spent about two decades in the private equity industry prior uh, to establishing Ebony. So a lot of what we do is, is colored by that uh, private equity history or legacy. And part of that is, is what is our objective or our goal. And our goal is to generate attractive, absolute returns over time, regardless of what the market does. So. When we think about defensive investing, it makes sense to think of it in the context of that objective. And so to our mind, defensive investing in equities is um, firstly not losing money, which is simple but, but important. But secondly, it means investing in a manner that allows us to generate uh, as best we can attractive, uh, these attractive absolute returns over time, irrespective of what the market is doing. And so what we try to do is, is bring a uh, what we think are the best elements of the private equity mindset and apply it to the public market and the elements of private equity that we apply to the public market we think are actually quite uh, defensive uh, in nature and well suited to, um, to achieving our objectives. So the first of those is just to, um, I might just, just spend a minute talking about what it is we do and why we think it's defensive in that context. And the first is really to focus on buying what we think are good quality companies. So robust business models, business models that have been tested uh, over time, and just focusing on investing in these high quality businesses that are resilient through cycles, we think is the first element of, of a defensive investing strategy. Um, the second element is doing a lot of fundamental research into those companies, so really understanding what it is that you own, and that process alone eliminates, eliminates a lot of companies from consideration. And the third element, uh, that's really critical to us is to, to try to buy those high quality companies at times when they're very mispriced. So we spend a lot of time trying to identify these mispricings in the market, uh, trying, to, uh, trying to identify the source of the mispricing, uh, spending a lot of time doing detailed and explicit valuation work to come to that view that the market has got it wrong and, and, the, and the business is very uh, mispriced. And these opportunities don't come up all the time, so it means being patient, uh, it means being very um, selective, and it means what, running what we think is a very um, sensible, concentrated portfolio of your best ideas. And so while many people think of concentrated investing as being risky, we think it can be quite the reverse. If you understand what you're buying and you're being very selective about what you buy at those big discounts, we think it's a very defensive approach to investing, uh, much like private equity. So this is just a snapshot of the 18 companies that we own in the portfolio at the moment. And as you can see, there's a range of uh, discounts to underlying value. So in simple terms, companies come into the portfolio at a very big discount. 
to underlying value, and over time, if we get it right, uh, they move towards that, uh, that underlying value that we see, and then uh, we exit those positions. And you can see there's a big um, embedded discount or embedded margin of safety that we think is really powerful in, in uh, defending our investors from adverse outcomes and also helping to, to drive returns. So those, those elements of quality businesses, understanding what you buy and buying with big discounts and looking for those opportunities and assembling a, a select portfolio of those things um, is consistent with the private equity filter that we bring to bear. But there's something else we do in addition to that, which private equity I don't think does and which can really only be done in the public market setting, which is to um, diversify our portfolio across different investment models, what we refer to as, as investment models. So I apologize for some of the small font there, but in line with, with the earlier speed, uh, speakers, there are, there are uh, different situations in the market that will throw up opportunities at different times, and they will react uh, and deliver results in a different manner and exposure to different risk factors. So we try to uh, always have a good balance across the portfolio in terms of these five investment models that we focus on. Some of them you'll recognize have a, have a private equity flavor coming through. There's something like an, what we refer to as an undervalued franchise, so an enormously high quality business, secular growth, often the companies that we have in this part of the portfolio are monopoly, duopoly type industry structures. Um, yeah, the, 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 the stereotypical high barrier to entry, deep moat company. We're still looking for very discounted purchase prices, but uh, the absolute price we're willing to pay for some of these undervalued franchises is higher than other things we might be prepared to pay. And they, they have their own uh, return drivers, they have their own risk factors that they're exposed to, and they also have a, um, a certain time frame in which they'll play out. And that's very different from the other end, which is what we refer to as our special situation investments. These can be spin-offs, um, corporate reorganizations, M&A activity, post-bankruptcy companies. Now they, again, have a very different set of return drivers, very different set of time frames, and a very different set of risk factors at play. And we have some other ones which I won't go into detail on, but public LBOs are like a, like a private equity deal, but a publicly listed company that has more debt than, than many investors are willing to uh, accept, but we think we've got expertise in identifying uh, the right circumstances to, to help drive equity returns. Cash flow cannibals, companies that are buying back their shares at, at very attractive rates and at a very meaningful way to reduce the shares outstanding and drive shareholder return. And classic value, which is the traditional deep value, extraordinarily cheap business, which will one day have its day in the sun, and we like to have some exposure to that in the portfolio, but we don't want the portfolio full of that because that, that kind of strategy can languish for a long time. So we think by having these, this diversification, not just by sector and not just by geography, but by these investment models, helps to ensure that there's always something in the portfolio that's driving the portfolio forward and uh, helping us deliver the, the goal of, of uh, attractive returns no matter what the market environment is, is, is offering us at the time. Thank you. I'll leave Thanks, it um, so I guess, wh where do we, we kick-start? Because I guess one of the big questions that keeps coming up in, in this value defensive space, and, and I know value is always sort of, you know, seen as a synonym to, to defensive, is, is sort of trying to avoid potential value traps. Um, and, you know, how do you then, as an investor, you know, from an asset manager point of view, try to make sure that you still perform and still beat a benchmark? Um, because as, as you have a lot of, you know, long-term asset owners in, in the room, still benchmarks are, are really important. Uh, and so while you have a backdrop to, to value and a backdrop to 
quality businesses and sustainable margins, some of these companies can, can take quite a while to play out. Um, so uh, maybe we can start with uh, Chris. Do you want to maybe give a bit of context in terms of how do you think about the, the backdrop of a, of a value trap, thinking about maybe quality versus you know, trying to make sure that you're not underperforming really a, a benchmark in, in this context? Yeah, um, I guess, I mean, we, we don't use the term value internally. We, we phrase it as value latency. So, you know, for us, we're not sort of looking at traditional accounting multiples of P or the price of the book or whatever to, to sort of define value. It's more, you know, what the, what the company can do going forward. How can the management team and the governance team um, compound the wealth from here? So, you know, that, that will require a full analysis of the industry. But it's more, you know, trying to find those self-help opportunities. So, you know, for something that optically might appear to be trading on 20 times P or a premium to its in its uh, benchmark might still have a huge amount of value latency that isn't being captured. We tend to find that uh, the market doesn't do a very good job of appreciating compounded capital deployment. So, you know, our process is uh, heavily focused around building deep relationships with management team over many, many years and finding those guys that can keep consistently turning, you know, a dollar into a dollar 20. Um, somebody mentioned it earlier around, you know, the danger of buybacks, and you know, obviously we've seen that in the U.S. So for us, you know, company increasing its buybacks with markets at all-time highs is, you know, candidly not how we want them to deploy capital, especially if they've got a track record of 25, 30 percent return on capital. So you know, I think for us, we're, we're always trying to sort of change the question of what is the latency here? How can this company keep growing its its share price, its margins, improving working cap, deploying its capital? Um, we, you know, we're aware of the the accounting multiples because they drive a lot of conversation and a lot of short-term volatility, but we're really looking for you know what's what's going to keep keep making a company double every five years, for example, in, in, a, in a mid-cap sense. Great. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. So on the question of value traps and how one might protect against those, we very explicitly early on in our process, our analysts are asking the question, as I noted, what could go wrong and we quantify how much we think we can lose in that scenario. So we want our team to be very eyes wide open about whatever the challenges are, model it into the cash flows of the business, think about how the market might take a more dim view from a valuation perspective and get a handle on how much can we lose. And for us, if the answer is pretty easily we can see losing more than a quarter, then we move on to the next stock that's not in keeping with what we think of as a defensive approach. Okay. And before, Adrian, you get started, how much does almost a get a bit of a style drift potentially that I can see happening where you talk about sort of a, a value backdrop and then it sort of starts to look for these quality businesses which then almost tilts towards growth and a momentum piece to the puzzle? Yeah, look, I think it's important. Uh, you know, I think I'm sure people in the room would say style drift is one of the cardinal sins of, of asset management. And so um, you know, I'm sure everyone's cautious not to do that. But part of that comes down to the team makeup and, and the way your process operates that it helps to work against that kind of style drift. And we, um, we put ourselves into the value camp. We, we like paying, paying what we think are attractive prices. We like buying things at below what we think is the fair price for those businesses. But we don't put ourselves into the, the deep value camp, to, for want of a better term. And yeah, we, we love growth. We love high returns on capital. We love companies that can invest uh, at those high returns, uh, reinvest at those high returns. We just don't want to pay for all of that. Because that, that, that then exposes you to risks that, that 
unless those things work out perfectly, you will suffer um, investment outcomes that perhaps aren't as good as you'd like because you've paid a price that assumes certain things and then those things don't work. So for us, we avoid value traps by buying businesses that we think will unquestionably be bigger, more profitable, uh, more valuable in, in three to five years, but, but we have to find that source of mispricing. We have to find an incredible reason why we think we're buying it cheaply right now. Mm -hmm. and, and just to further to that point, I guess from, a, from an asset owner perspective, as you think about defensive and value and, and correct pricing, how are asset owners sort of engaging in this sort of backdrop? You know, are they thinking about this sort of fitting within their defensive equity piece or their value bucket? <coughs> like where does it sit within the broader equity portfolio? Like when, when you're having that conversation in terms of where do you sit in their, in their portfolio, what, what's the typical conversation like? I think the, the message that we're trying to get across is that we, we coming from the background that we do in, the, in, the, in that, I guess, that private equity uh, origin where our objectives are, are um, in many ways much more like a private equity business. So we're looking to generate, we invest firmly in the public market and they're only in the public market but we're looking to generate an attractive rate of return that meets our clients' objectives in a way that doesn't um, expose them to risk of capital loss, but also is in, is in, does not rely on the market to be driving our returns. So we're trying to really be very selective about picking those opportunities out of the market. And, and there have been a number of sessions today where people have talked about some of the tailwinds that have driven the market over the last 10 years, maybe becoming somewhat exhausted and may not have the the, the punch or the impact they, they've had in the past 10 years for the next 10 years, we're trying to offer an approach that is defensive in the sense that it meets those objectives of delivering an attractive rate of return regardless of what the market does because there are always these opportunities um, within the market and, and I think that's the, you know, the message we try to get across to people. We'll move to Greg and I guess one of the other things to sort of touch on in, in terms of companies in the market is, is the whole ETF piece which, which was discussed as well. In, as companies sit in these ETFs, you know, if you do get a drawdown, what's the potential influence to these these companies as well? Um, Greg, do you want to? Well, the ETFs uh, seem to be exacerbating price moves and, and the level that prices are set at more than independent, independently bidding and, and setting the price. Mm -hmm. So from our perspective, we don't tend to like the stocks where the, the very top of the register is heavily tilted to passive. You don't want to find yourself in a situation where there's a lot of forced selling and nobody shows up to buy. That's when you can get a big uh, dislocation in the market. But beyond that, we tend to think that it's the non-passives who are setting the price, that that's where the debate lies. And trying to understand what is forming the opinion on the other side of the trade, why are we getting it at a good price, is a very key component to what we do. And Chris, yeah, on, on the same sort of piece, how, how does potentially sort of the momentum or the narrative to some of these stories, particularly some of these ones that are maybe good value, and then there's sort of this change in catalyst in terms of the type of business, and it gets interesting, and then sort of you know, taking a run, um, and then you've got, you've got price rises, it then goes into more passive, and you've got to run. You know, how do you then try and deal with, with that backdrop as well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, I've had the two examples of stocks um, this year, which which I won't name, but where they've you know been kind of long-held portfolio stocks where the you know liquidity grows as price grows. So you get situations where um, you know they get to a point and they're suddenly get included in a national index, 
and then they start getting put into various style buckets and you know whether it's tech or aviation or, or other ways of playing it because it just seems to be more and more of these things coming every day and it completely changes the nature of the stock price behavior so volatility goes up um, I've had you know CFOs complaining to me this year that they're losing all their long-only investors because the volatility has increased after the index inclusion so you've got some pretty perverse um, unintended consequences of, of what we're seeing all right, we've got 20 minutes to go. We're going to um, switch to table discussion. So, you know, as part of the table discussion, again, we'll have a table captain. We'll make it uh, one of the sponsors um, in the room. And so if I don't get questions, I'll be calling on tables. Um, and really for how do you, you know, how are you thinking about this whole defensive piece, particularly where we stand in the market where valuations um, are, um, and sort of thinking about, you know, potentially sort of down downweighting the risk in your defensive, in your equities piece and making it more defensive, or do you just keep the same risk